News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Professor Christina Greer and Katie Onan. Hello. Hi, Harry. Hello there. Hey, and joining us right now is Jimmy Vilkind of the Wall Street Journal, who's here to help explain to listeners, maybe to us, what's happening in a gubernatorial race where we Zeldin, who's been vastly outspent in a state where Republicans are outnumbered by Democrats and even independents, in a campaign where he's only seemed to draw much attention when weird crimes happen right by him or his family, and is suddenly much too close for comfort, judging from the latest polls, to Governor Kathy Hochul, as we're coming up on early voting and then election day. So, Jimmy, welcome. Uh, Last year, uh, New Jersey's Democratic governor, Phil Murphy, held on by like one point in a race nobody paid any attention to because polling had him up by like 10 points right up to the election. Could New York really be on the verge of electing a new Republican to statewide office for the first time since George Pataki beat Mario Cuomo in 1994 when I was too young to uh, legally smoke? Like, where are we at here? Well, yeah, in 1994, uh, before the days of podcasts. Um, you know, it's it's difficult to say. Uh, and there have been several public polls that have been taken in this race, including two that were released this last week, which sort of painted pretty different pictures. Siena College Research Institute came out with a survey on Tuesday, which showed Hochul with an 11-point lead. That's down from the 17 points she had previously had in the Siena surveys. So it did show some momentum for Zeldin. But the eye popper was a Quinnipiac poll, which showed that Hochul was leading just by four points. Uh, And, you know, it's a weird era of politics. You know, I kind of stopped predicting electoral outcomes when I correctly forecast that, uh, that Hillary Clinton would beat Jeb Bush in 2016. Uh, So, um, so, you know, any, anything could happen. And I, I've, done a little bit of reporting about just exactly what Zeldin's doing and one of the one of the tactics that is 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 helping to boost his campaign and it's it's perhaps a little counterintuitive Harry given the demographic trends you outlined but the path to Lee Zeldin's victory may in fact lie in New York City um you know of course the five boroughs have about 42 43% of the state of new york's population but they generally only account for about 30% of the vote in gubernatorial elections i ran the numbers i think it was uh, almost 30 on the nose in 2018 and a little less than that in 2014 for a republican to have a chance of winning in the state they have to get at least 30%. Any point is better, uh, 30 to 35% in the five boroughs of the city. Uh, They have to be ahead by about 10 or 15 points in the suburbs. That's Long Island, uh, Rockland, Westchester, and then run up the score in upstate New York. We have to have like a 60-40 margin. So that Quinnipiac poll was so striking because it put Lee Zeldin's support in the five boroughs at 37%, which is light years ahead of what the last two Republican gubernatorial candidates received. And it's also out of whack with what other surveys have showed. So 
I'll be focusing on that. I think a lot of people focus on it. And clearly, Zeldin's campaign has placed a renewed focus on getting out the city vote. And of course, that that doesn't mean, um, you know, trying to knock on doors and be at subway stops on the Upper West Side. It means going to the outer boroughs. It means, um, you know, kind of uh, unabashed ethnic politics. Uh, all the things that we have seen elect Republicans in New York City. It wasn't that long ago that New York had a Republican mayor, and then it had uh, a Republican slash independent slash Democrat, but before he was a Democrat mayor, this guy Bloomberg. So, <laughs> All the same guy. Hmm. So the city has a uh, very cool slider up uh, that you can see. Uh, just go to what is Lee Zeldin's path to victory that basically just, just takes, uh, you know, earlier turnouts, like say the 2020 presidential election. And then you can tweak those to say, if, if this many Biden voters don't support Hochul or vote for Zeldin, how much does he need uh, to win? And, and and sort of using that, do, do the rough math, Jimmy, you were just talking about, about w- where he needs to pull support off. Um, <laughs> Kathy Hochul is significantly outspent uh, and out fundraised uh, Zeldin. Um, there is this this advantage for Democrats who now have super majorities in both houses. The legislature, you know, controlled things for quite a long time. Like, what accounts for uh, uh, these signs and some of the polling, at least, of, of real tightening and like the prospect of a race that, if it's not a tremendous upset, you know, could easily be you know single digits. It appears, and obviously, we'll see. You know, I think it's two things, Harry, that are that are related. First, you know, politics is tidal. The polity is tidal. It moves one way, it moves the other way. Um, and the signs nationally are that this is going to be a year that favors Republicans. Um, obviously, going back to 18, or actually, I guess, 19, dickety-do, um, you have the opposite party of the president usually does well in the first midterm election after that president's elected. Uh, so that would be the Republicans with Democrats controlling the White House and Congress. We see that inflation continues to rise to record levels. We see the price of gas is starting to tick up. Uh, and, you know, all that leads to sort of a, a formless dissatisfaction where voters are, are just, just frustrated. Their lives are not great and they want to throw some bum out. And if the bums currently in power are Democrats, they're the bums who get thrown out. So one of the key measures that I, I know um, some of the more astute politicians and I've been taught to always look for is the right track, wrong track, um, right direction, wrong track uh, question in the polls. Uh, and I just pulled up Siena. Uh, they have New York State likely voters at um, 52% in the wrong direction and 39% on the right track. So voters aren't delighted. They're not delighted with their uh, current situation. And when you have an incumbent governor for whom the core of the campaign message is, keep things going, I'm doing fine, and I'm going to keep going on the same course, you you might be more receptive to a message that promises change. Uh, And now the second um, point is that Lee Zeldin has grabbed some specific issues that seem to be resonating. Um, He's talked about crime. He's talked about and tapped into, even though the statistics show in varying areas, different um, 
things that are happening with crime, uh, there's a perception that crime is up. And every time there is a random attack, uh, earlier this week, we saw a 48-year-old man get pushed in front of a subway car in Jackson Heights. You know, this is no Republican readout. Jackson Heights, Queens, probably the most diverse square few miles in the United States. Um, And Zeldin's there the next day. He's talking about how crime is out of control. He's talking about his proposal to roll back some of the criminal justice changes that were enacted by Democrats in 2019 and have already been retailored and reprimped and and, and paired in, in various ways. And to uh, fire so, Alvin Bragg on day one, right? Which is the first black Manhattan district attorney who just got elected himself. Yeah. Why is Alvin Bragg like different than the other prosecutors? I don't know. Anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, he has these specific proposals on crime that uh, seem to that he that he that he has been remarkably on message and consistent about for more than a year, uh, and then he has another few issues that are specifically targeted to the New York City suburbs and the outer boroughs. He's against congestion pricing. This is, of course, the tolling system that the MTA is trying to roll out to raise funds for its capital program. Uh, so you know he has. Things that are concrete and specific uh, that he could promise to voters that he will enact. Uh, and if voters aren't happy with the current course, I think that we're seeing in the polls that people are willing to listen, at least. Hmm. So, Jimmy, I mean, I think polls always tighten as we get closer to election days. We, we kind of see this, especially with governor's races. It's like, you know, could we have a Republican? And New York very well could have a Republican. I think a lot of people forget about the 12 years of Pataki, uh, even though Lee Zeldin's a very different type of candidate. Republican Party, the Republican Party has moved far, far away from the Pataki era. But I do see a path for him. I don't think he's necessarily going to win, but there definitely is a path in New York because I think New York is a lot more red than we'd like to believe. And I think New York City is a lot more red than we'd like to believe. But walk us through how an election-denying, January 6th-supporting individual in New York can even get to this particular position where we've been having a conversation about him being striking distance within the governorship of New York State. Well, his bet is clearly that New Yorkers are are not focused on his support for Donald Trump, are not focused on the fact that Trump endorsed him and that he had some text conversations with uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, uh, after the 2020 election. Uh, it's It's almost like it's priced in. It's it's known. He's a Trump guy. Uh, he's not shy about it. He's not doing this kind of awkward dance that we've seen from Republicans in New York who feel that they need to walk a line to appeal to independent and some moderate Democratic voters, but also keep the Trump support in the base. Uh, and the other issue that the Hochul campaign has uh, really intensely focused on is Zeldin's opposition to abortion rights. Uh, At one point, Zeldin said that he would appoint a pro-life health commissioner. He's since sort of walked that back. Uh, He tries to, or I shouldn't say he tries to, he has responded to this attack by saying, look, the law in New York is the law. Abortion is um, legal with strong protections in statute in this state. And there's nothing I'm really going to be able to do as governor to change that. And I'm not going to try to change that. So again, 
you know, voters going into this uh, final sprint before the election sort of tugged by two competing things. Um, will the issues of crime and the economy be foremost in their mind? Or will these uh, characteristics of Lee Zeldin, his ties to Donald Trump, his position on abortion rights, which polls show are out of step with the majority of New York voters, will they kind of win the day? Will there be enough voters who say, I'm sorry, you're a non-starter for me because of these two things, um, particularly moderate and independent voters? Or will they be more forward-looking and think about what is being offered by both candidates. Just one quick follow-up to that, Jimmy. Um, so Lee Zeldin is very Trumpy in a lot of ways. His affect is very un-Trumpy. It's uh, mild and, uh, you know, he's trying to project a fatherly thing. It reminds me a little of Glenn Youngkin, um, who had some, some, some really harsh policy things but had that uh, affect and won an interesting race in Virginia. Uh, I also saw Pat Ryan win a special election, who's a Democrat in uh, Ulster County, that was taken as a bellwether, that uh, abortion was going to really decide things, that Democrats were fired up and going to show up. And from the national polling right now I've seen, and some of the New York polling, it seems like that, that set of dynamics has shifted, that some of that has been priced in uh and and as you're saying like maybe this is going to come down to how big the national wave is that that has Hochul established herself as anything more than a replacement level candidate and in some ways same same question for 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 Zeldin in this race where we've had no debates and, and limited engagement I think Zeldin has done a um a, a solid job of picking issues and sticking to them, issues where he has a clear contrast, issues where he is finding some resonance from voters, according to polls, and he has been disciplined enough to continue to hit them over and over and over again. Mostly that's crime. Uh, you know, your question about Hochul, Harry, is is a little bit, um, it's a, you know, I, I have to think for a little bit more of a moment about that. You know, she has continued in the sort of moderate democratic policy vein that we saw from the last guy uh, and that she inherited from the last guy. Um, so what has she really done? She has enacted some tax rebates as part of this year's budget. Uh, she has pushed for incentives to build or to have uh, the company Micron build a really big chip plant in upstate New York. Uh, she has responded to the rise in crime by rolling back some of the 2019 bail laws that were enacted by some more progressive members of the Democratic Party. Uh, she has also um, enacted a gas tax holiday. So she she hasn't done anything particularly that that is a, a marquee thing. Um, in fact, many people might might have known, and I think people even um, half joked, half attacked, that the big accomplishment in her budget, the headline policy, was uh, money for the, the Buffalo Bills, New York's only legitimate NFL football team, to, to construct a stadium in the suburbs in Western New York. So, um, you know, in terms of what has Hochul done to bring herself into the consciousness, um, that's that's as you can hear from my uh, 
last you know minute of 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 somewhat stammering speech it's not the easiest question to answer and again especially in contrast with the last guy who was this larger than life personality who understood that you know, shtick is part of political success here in the Empire State. Think of Ed Koch, think of Firo LaGuardia, you know, Firo LaGuardia is bashing slot machines with a sledgehammer, right? Pinball machines. Yeah, there's the mayor, right? There he is, look at him, look at him go. And, And that is not Kathy Hochul's style. And also, we can't ignore the fact that one of these things is not like the other. She is the first woman to hold this position. And she has been very clear that her style of leadership is a more collaborative style of leadership. And it is more focused in the explicit work of trying to move things forward rather than um, sort of grabbing attention for attention's sake or, or using the bully pulpit for the sake of being a bully. To follow up, and I don't want you to stammer on on this. I know you said you had to think about it, but thinking specifically to her campaigning, right? There's Kathy Hochul who ascended to this this job through, in part because of the actions of the other guy. Um, But what is it, do you think about her campaign that you think maybe she hasn't connected with voters? She hasn't done enough to sort of, you know, I saw this week uh, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine is having a, you know, get out, get out the vote thing, which I think a colleague noted, that's certainly not what some people want to see for their candidate in late October, but Democrats wake up. Yeah. Democrats wake up. That's not what Democrats, right. That's not what some people will want to see. So if you can point to specifics about, you know, why she hasn't maybe been able to distinguish herself in this campaign as not just, I'm not the other guy. Well, so you have to consider the wellspring from when she came. She's from Buffalo. It's not the state's population center. It is not the locus of political power in this state in either the Democratic or the Republican parties. So if you think of what are the big Democratic bastions in the state of New York, it's pretty clear. It's Brooklyn. uh, It's certain parts of Queens. We have Mm -hmm. Black neighborhoods in Eastern and Southern Queens. uh, And it's more progressive areas of Manhattan. Uh, as well as the Bronx. So here is a governor. She's not of any of these areas. Her time uh, delivering for these areas has been limited. She has been governor for a little bit over a year. When you compare that to many other candidates who, in many instances, I even think in most instances, come up through one of these these democratic power centers. They become the favorite daughter or the favorite son of these. Um, She lacks that. I'm sure she's going to do very well in Buffalo. Uh, And, but that by the unfortunate population trends of the state, uh, more people have decided that they would rather live um, in in Williamsburg than in Buffalo. Um, So I think that's part of it. I think that this this um the limited time and her limited experience in delivering for some of these communities has led her to be less known than some of her predecessors who have done well now she did really well in her democratic primary she trounced uh, her opponent jumani williams the new york city public advocate who does come from Brooklyn, who does come up through through that machine. So 
I think that the question is going to be, if not animated by pure joy or or love of Kathy Hochul, will we see rank-and-file Democrats in these traditionally strong Democratic areas move to the polls and vote the party ticket? Or will enough of them either, one, stay home and be less than enthused, or two, be more receptive to a message because their their father, brother, sister, step-cousin, was maybe a victim of a crime or, or had seen things or that they've noticed deterioration and they're just looking for change. So Eric Adams, you were talking about main characterism mm-hmm. and Andrew Cuomo is the main character. As we're recording this, Andrew Cuomo has just dropped the first episode of his podcast. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, the Mooch is uh, one of the guests, but Eric Adams has taken center stage as the personality, the entertainer, and Hochul has seemed very accepting of that. At the same time, that she actually has not been so helpful with parts of his agenda. Uh, for instance, he, he really wanted more reforms to bail reform. He did not get that. Hochul, the legislature took the lead, but she largely stu- stood with them. He wanted a significant extension of mayoral control. He didn't get that. Um, he's wanted more help from the state with uh, the uh, asylum seekers who are coming in, uh, with local on the ticket and not wanting to be the face of that issue. He didn't get that. There seems to be a weird trade-off where, where, you know, the governor, the former governor who famously said, uh, George Pataki, who's all out for Zelda right now, was the coattail holder uh, on 9-11, and that's not how it should be, and was always going to be the uh, the dominant person to gender it the alpha male, as he said. Right? He's gone. Hochul seems like it's been called a Rose Garden campaign. Right now, there's she's accepted one debate, but Zeldin hasn't. Maybe there'll be no debates. Um, like Adams has become the central figure, even as she is uh, the, the dominant political power in the state, just by virtue of, of being governor. What's up with that that set of arrangements? And is this just sort of a gamble that, that she can passively get through to a full term and then assert herself uh, in new ways from that? Um, you know, I don't know that anybody other than certainly the people on this podcast and probably some of the listeners of this podcast put much stock into who is holding whose coat uh, governor and mayor. I mean, and I, I know that Kathy Hochul would certainly say that in response to sort of this line of thinking. Who cares? Who cares who speaks first at the press conference? Who cares who appears with, with who? She, um, and so to your point, Harry, you're absolutely right. That to the point that shtick is part of politics in New York, Eric Adams understands and embraces that and has certainly become the dominant character in the New York political scene uh, in a way that, you know, the last guy as governor was more of the dominant character in the political scene. Uh, And, you know, the last guy as mayor sort of they were they were foils for each other. It's like the Lego Batman movie, you know, (laughs) to some extent. so I don't think that Hochul is focused on that. I think that, and it remains to be seen whether or not this is naive or whether this will prove to be just fine, uh, whether or not um, she thinks that her record her work, uh, be it work on policy or just work in terms of 
raising political funds, uh, spending them on advertisements and other efforts, uh, and 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 getting out there. Whether that will be enough to carry her, um, you know, we talked about how politics is tidal. We talked about how the tide seems at this point to be going toward the Republicans. Uh, but if we continue the metaphor, New York is is pretty high above sea level for the Democrats. So it's going to take one hell of a tide and one hell of a wave to knock out a statewide Democratic office holder. Uh, you mentioned Phil Murphy in New Jersey. What do you call a guy who was supposed to get elected governor by 10 points, but gets elected governor by three or four points? Governor. Mm -hmm. You call them governor. Uh, and so if Kathy Hochul wins this race by 300 votes, governor. Right. And Jimmy, I, I agree with that fully. I think, and you've brought up Jersey a few times. I think the only thing that makes me a little nervous, even though I still think she'll go across the finish line because we, you know, we can never predict these things. But what makes me a little nervous is the gender piece. And I think that there's still so many voters who just cannot and will not vote for a woman. I've heard them, you know, I've heard people just twist themselves into knots and the mental gymnastics they have about why they don't like a particular female candidate. You know, obviously we saw it with Hillary Clinton, but even with Kathy Hochul, it's like, oh, she's so corrupt, as if, right? I mean, the, the reasons that people have a, a dislike or a disdain for her, you know, sometimes it's like, it can't be anything other than gender because you'd never say this about a, a male candidate, Democrat or Republican. So do you think that that's going to play or it is playing at all into some of these numbers we're seeing, especially as we get closer to November 8th? Um, you know, it's not the thing, as you as you mentioned, that that shows up readily apparent because they're, they're very rare as the Joder is like, you know... It's just because she's a woman that I don't like. Right. Them. She's got oh. ovaries and I hate her. <laughs> right. No one's going to say, but you know, we see it time no, and time again with candidates of color and female it's candidates. A, it's a subconscious thing for some people uh, mm -hmm. to varying levels of, of intent that, yeah, I've picked up in interviews with voters or with people. Uh, they do have a, a judgier standard for female politicians. It's never articulated in terms of gender, but the things that didn't bother them about male politicians always bother them about female politicians. So um, how much of that gets priced into this race or how much of that becomes apparent in this race? Uh, I defer to the political scientists to look at the trends um, in this election with, with data gleaned from however it goes. But I absolutely think that will be a factor. I don't know how big of a factor it would be. Um, and the only thing I really have to say about it as a man is to just defer to Elizabeth Warren's comment about it. Who, who nailed it on the head. It's the trap question. On the one hand, you're a whiner and you're complaining, but on the other hand, to say that it doesn't exist, who are you, who are you kidding? Mm -hmm. What are some of the code words that people, you know, they don't like that, uh, the shape of her clothes? I mean, what is it that that they, they easily just say, it's because she's a woman, but instead they say, I don't know. In my, just so in I my could know for myself to look out for. <laughs> In my estimation, it's not a comment about appearance. It's generally, as I've detected this from voters talking about female candidates uh, or female office holders, it's um, we 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 are far more willing to forgive male politicians for being nakedly ambitious and and crassly climbing ahead. 
and when we see exactly the same traits and exactly in some cases the same tactics in female politicians it leaves an icky feeling in some men and and they will articulate like oh i just don't i just don't like i just don't like uh and 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 um that is how i have perceived it most uh clearly and then if you look at how certain issues and certain things are treated um, compared from one person to another, uh, certain lines of attack are, they just seem to land and stick more. Uh, Professor Greer mentioned um, there's lots of talk about some pay to play where Governor Hochul, one of her big donors, ended up getting a big contract for state tests. She is not, by any stretch of the imagination, the first political official or governor mm-hmm. who has pay to play. Um, Maybe we'll remember that the last guy's surrogate brother was indicted in a pay-to-play scandal and convicted in a pay-to-play scandal. So to say that this is somehow um, new for her is just absolutely factually inaccurate. And that's not a partisan statement. This happens on all parties. It's a people in power statement. It's the structure of New York's campaign finance system that leads to this and always will lead to this. So. Um, when you're weighting that more heavily, perhaps, than you would be weighting it were were male politician. Again, you're not going to say, well, I'm more concerned about this pay to play because she's a woman. Um, I think that is how it shows up, at least in my conversations with voters. So a lot of the reporting about fairly ordinary corruption with Hochul has actually come out in the Albany Times Union and then has been sharpened uh, as a political attack in the New York Post, which is like picked up and reused. They're they're like calmer or more boring, depending on your perspective uh, reporting. And the Post's line here has been, in effect, this is the inevitable result of a uh, one-party state. New York has had, Chrissy and I have talked about this a whole number of times, like like uh, there are many more Democrats than Republicans, but this is not just a blue state. The, the reality is more complicated. Um, I think some of what's come out with Hochul, both with this uh, test, uh, with this person who got like the very valuable contract for testing and their kid ended up as an intern on the campaign with you know uh, people like uh, Catherine Garcia or high up in the administration making follow-up calls directly off of fundraisers stuff like that I, again I, I in my view ordinary uh, ordinary corrupt and like some how some of this is done by the way there's mild campaign finance reform coming after this election um do you see any chance of of this set of arguments breaking through do you see voters really engaging with this race in the limited time remaining and with maybe one debate coming up next week? Or is this really, as you've been saying, going to just come down to the, the the national picture, whether people are more focused on inflation or abortion, that set of things, and just be uh, a race where many people will turn out, but uh, gets decided without New Yorkers really engaging? Um, it, it seems to me like it, it has that feel with, with time running out. You know, I, I always struggle with that question um, about, you know, to what to what to what degree are people's stomachs turned by corruption? And I'm, I'm using air quotes uh, for to use Harry's phrase, you know, routine corruption. Um, 
And as a jaded political reporter, uh, it, it doesn't do much to my stomach generally when these things happen. It, my, my threshold is much, much higher um, than, than some of the things that we've seen. Uh, but there is some electoral backing that like the voters are not focused on this. Uh, they do not focus on this. Again, you know, Andrew Cuomo won a uh, he won election while his top um, aides and were, were convicted at trial that year in 2018. Um, we've seen people under indictment win elections and then subsequently be convicted for the charges of which they were originally accused. So it does not seem to be a motivating factor for voters in this state. I, I, that's one of the things that makes New York the empire state, I suppose. Uh, and I, I just don't know that this time will be different, um, asterisk, but for what we just said about the gender dynamics and the subtle ways in which voters either consciously or subconsciously uh, hold people to a standard. Uh, in this regard. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, just to quickly see this out. Uh, what are you going to be watching on election night? And as uh, you know, poll numbers and returns start coming in, are there like counties or indicators you're mm -hmm. going to be really keyed in on? I always think it's good to watch uh, Long Island. That'll be a bellwether. This is Lee Zeldin's home uh, turf. He's a Congress a uh, man from, from Suffolk County in the East end of Long Island. So I expect him to win Long Island. If he wins it by a strong margin that puts him ahead and it puts him on track. Uh, if he's carrying it by, you know, say less than 10 points, that's, that's going to be an early sign that he's in some, some deep trouble. Uh, I'm always keen to see Erie County. That's always a good bellwether County. You have the city of Buffalo, uh, and then you have some, some pretty red suburbs. It's a pretty, uh, mixed, uh, it's a pretty mixed County in terms of its demographics and its politics. Uh, it's a decent bellwether for the nation. So how does Hochul do there? If Hochul, uh, racks up a really big margin, that's going to be a sign that there's going to be um, good things ahead for her. If she's struggling in Erie County in her home turf, that's also going to be a sign that there are problems ahead. And I'm also going to be watching nationally. What are voters doing in Arizona? What are they doing in Wisconsin? Uh, some of the other states that have competitive gubernatorial elections, Ohio, uh, because again, politics is tidal. As much as we know that New York is the bright center of the universe, um, other things do happen in other places that that are indicia of what's going on um, in American politics. Jimmy Vielkind of the Wall Street Journal. I love having Delmore. Jimmy on here. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy, so much. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. It's it's good to be back. I'm I'm sorry that it's been this long. We were waiting for someone. We were waiting for a real good reason to bring you back on. <laughs> FAQ. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York and whose work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. 
We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists online at thebrick.house. Our hosts this episode were me, Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our audio engineer is Adam Kamara, and a special thank you to our guest, Wall Street Journal reporter Jimmy Bealtide. And thank you, listeners, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back with you next week. <laughs>